Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. In this episode, you will hear the edited version of a session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2021. Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. Vincent Brown in conversation with Maya Jasanoff. such a pleasure to be able to put together today one of my favorite events of all time the Jaipur Literature Festival with one of my favorite historians and colleagues Professor Vincent Brown um, and uh, it's uh, wonderful to get the chance to talk to you Vince about this terrific new book Tacky's Revolt um, which although the title refers to a particular event is really a book about a lot more and i hope that over the course of our conversation today readers will get a feel for the incredible range of implications of this episode uh, in the way that we think about um, diaspora uh, war empire and the dynamics really of liberty and of uh, power um so i wonder if we can start um actually with the event that gives the book its title and um can you set the scene for us um, what is the significance of Jamaica in the middle of the 18th century, which is where the focus of this book really resides? Okay, well, first, um, I want to thank Sharupa for that very generous introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here um, and a pleasure to be speaking with you, Maya, one of my favorite colleagues and historians as well. So this is just a thrill for me. Um, but thanks for the question, because, you know, you're right. The book itself is about an event which is the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire, which occurred in Jamaica in 1760 and then lasted on into 1761. It's particularly important because Jamaica in the 18th century was Great Britain's most profitable, most militarily significant, and best politically connected colony in the British Americas, really in the British Atlantic world. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, what India became in the 19th century, right? It's, it's the heart, the seat of Britain's empire in America. Of the 26 colonies that Great Britain had on the eve of the American Revolution, uh, Jamaica was by far um, the, the most important of them. So this revolt in 1760, which occurred in the midst of the Seven Years' War between Britain and its, its imperial enemies, France and, and Spain most notably, um, was one of the larger battles of the Seven Years' War in Britain's most important colonies. And yet it hasn't really been considered either a battle in the Seven Years' War by most historians of, of that event, um, nor has it been really um, wrestled with as a major, major event in the history of empire. So this is, you know, the first book and really the first long account of the revolt since Edward Long's account in 1774. And Edward Long was a, was a Jamaican planter historian um, who experienced the revolt and wrote the first account that has really kind of shaped all subsequent accounts until this one. So I'm trying to revise our understanding of both Jamaica's place in the British Empire, but also the significance of this revolt and its consequences for, for imperial history. Well, I think this analogy that you made between Jamaica in the 18th century for the empire and India in the 19th century for the empire is so 
important here because uh, I think it's fair to say that you know most uh, people who know about British imperialism in India are probably not that aware of the significance of Jamaica. And tell us what that significance resided in. Why was Jamaica so important? Well, Jamaica was the most profitable colony in the British Empire, in part because sugar was the most profitable crop that was being traded. Um, sugar was kind of the microchip of the 18th century. It was kind of where a lot of these empires, Britain, France, uh, Portugal before that, so Brazil, um, Saint-Domingue for the French Empire, Cuba in the 19th century for the Spanish Empire, all of them kind of, you know, based their agricultural fortunes on sugar. Now, sugar was a tremendously difficult crop to grow, and it took enormous amounts of labor, and it was labor that had to be drilled and disciplined and subjected um, to incredibly harsh conditions. And so it was the kind of labor that people tended to grow with slaves. Um, so sugar was really from the, the 15th, 16th century on through the 19th century, one of the primary reasons for the proliferation of the transatlantic slave trade. So Jamaica was a colony that was about 90% enslaved uh, and anywhere from 50 to 75% of the people enslaved on Jamaica during the 18th century had been born directly in Africa and had migrated to Jamaica through the transatlantic slave trade. So really sugar is at the heart of an incredibly profitable political economy for the empire that also engages the slave trade very directly. And that brings in African history in a much more direct way than I think we've, we've been accustomed to, to thinking through. Absolutely, and that's something uh, I, I'd like for you to expand on in just a second. And I think, you know, here we see, again, a really, I think, important truth for people to understand about the nature of empire in the 18th century. You know, if you look at it from the Indian point of view, you have the East India Company, which is, of course, rapacious and extractive, but is operating in a very, very different kind of economic landscape and on the basis of a very different sort of um, you know, uh, uh, mercantile uh, foundation, namely, you know, trade in textiles. Whereas Jamaica, it's, it's a slave labor economy producing a particular commodity that is of the utmost uh, importance and value uh, in the imperial world. So, um, so you just alluded, of course, to the fact that 80% of, uh, of the uh, enslaved people in Jamaica in the, in the, in the 18th century were had been born in Africa. Can you tell us more about the African side uh, of, of this story? Yeah, I mean, this really gets at kind of one of the things I was trying to do with the revolt is to, to tie this revolt into both European imperial history, as I said, but also into African history. Because, you know, as I indicated, you know, most of those laborers who were working in Jamaica either had come from Africa or were directly descended from people who came from Africa. And the question is how they got there and what experiences they brought with them when they came in Jamaica, did that work, and then occasionally staged these revolts. And what I found was that, you know, many of these people who engaged this revolt were from the Gold Coast, uh, roughly what's now Ghana in West Africa. And the Gold Coast itself was a particularly war-torn um, uh, section of the African coast, and that actually facilitated the slave trade. So what happened is the Europeans would trade a number of goods uh, to West Africans for slaves. And one of the principal goods that they would trade were firearms, guns, right? This increased the scale of African wars, the various conflicts on the African coast. 
And oftentimes those captives would be taken, sold to the Europeans, transported through the slave trade out to the Americas, where sometimes those captives who had been involved in African wars regrouped, drawing on the military experience they had in West Africa, and then staged revolts against plantation society. So you see the people from the Gold Coast had a reputation, an Atlantic-wide reputation for staging revolts, really from Suriname all the way up to New York City, from the last third of the 17th century through the first three quarters of the 18th century. And one of the largest of these revolts was this one in Jamaica that I was focused on. So what it does is it ties together the African history of political conflict, which is involved with European trade and with conflicts increase in scale because of European firearms, uh, and then plays that history out into the Americas so that you see these revolts in the Americas in some ways as extensions of African conflicts. I'd love for you to say a little bit more about the, the sort of group name that's given to the people from the Gold Coast, which is Coromantes. I found this a fascinating uh, kind of term and, and idea because it reminded me a lot of the idea of the martial races to some extent in uh, other parts of imperial history and the way that the British, uh, for example, you know, at about the same time were engaged in the Highland clearances and rapidly trying to get Highlanders who were their great enemies folded into the British imperial armies. So, so talk a little more about the Coromantes. And, and well, I'm so glad you asked that question because in some ways, and I think in a footnote, I talk about how the Coromantes themselves are kind of, can be compared to Highlanders or Zulus or Sikhs in a later period, right? A kind of among these martial races that are employed um, within the British empire to do certain kinds of work, particularly military work. Now, as I said, you know, the Gold Coast was a particularly war-torn region. And so you had, you know, Akan, Ga, Danme, Eve speakers um, in different polities in conflict with each other. But as they moved out into the Americas to the transatlantic slave trade, they often found they had more in common with each other than they did with Africans from other parts of the coast. And so they, as I said, regrouped. They formed this new category of belonging, you could call it, um, that was called Coromanti. This wasn't an identity that obtained in West Africa. This was an Atlantic identity. This was an American identity that you found, as I said, from Suriname to New York City. Um, and people regrouped as Coromanti and they had that reputation, right? That reputation almost as a martial race, as you said. Now this meant that they did a couple of things. A, they could regroup and fight the British empire, but also they were often employed, right? Within military units by Great Britain. So you found Coromanti being kind of especially uh, favored um, by planters, but also by military leaders um, as people who could do the service of the British Empire. So one of these rebels that I focused on quite intently in the book is a man who had been a military leader in West Africa, and then he was enslaved to a Royal Navy ship captain. And he actually served for a year aboard a Royal Navy warship as it was engaged in battles with the Spanish and the French in the war before the Seven Years' War. Then he was decommissioned, put as a driver on that ship captain's plantation, and then became one of the leaders, leaders of this largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire. So you see all the way through this series, this process, he is drawing on his military experience to do a number of different, play a number of different roles, uh, both within the British Empire and as one of its antagonists. I'm so glad you mentioned him because I wanted to um, 
tell our audience that this book is about large phenomena, but it's also very much about individual people and tracing some of the trajectories of these figures. The one you just alluded to is, uh, ha has like many of these characters, of course, different names, depending on who's talking about them. Um, in this case, Wager or Apongo, right? Um, and the name Wager is even from the name of the warship on which he served, right? So, so there's this incredible sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, multiplicity of influences going into the conceptualization of these figures, depending on the context that they're operating in. Um, so one of the actors I'm tempted to say in your work um, is not the people, but the place, the geography of all of this. And I wonder if you can also tell us a bit about the role of geography in, in this book. And, and one thing I should also maybe signal to people, and we can get into this when we, when we talk maybe a little more about the actual events, is that, you know, um, uh, Professor Brown has, and I realize my Zoom backdrop is maybe getting in the way here, but he's created these vivid maps of the, uh, the movements of different people through the landscape on a, on a monthly basis. So tell us about geography as, a, as an actor in history. Thanks for asking. So geography was very important to me for a couple of reasons. The first is that I really wanted to tie these different regional histories together through this event. To see Taki's revolt um, and the revolts that, that followed it as kind of eddies in a larger current of transatlantic warfare and a current that you know, was imperial, um, but a current that was also African. Um, and what I wanted to do was like to really think of African history as American history in the way that we've been accustomed to thinking about European history as part of American history in this early period. I wanted to do the same for Africa, which was really a geographic conception to kind of tie together these regions through the itineraries of the people that were fighting these conflicts, right? So that was one thing as a kind of conceptual map that I was trying to draw that would give us a larger sense of how early American geography actually played out in a social sense. The second thing was using geography as a source, really. Um, oftentimes when we go to write about political conflicts, you know, maybe we have pamphlets or something like that, um, that will identify the war aims and the ideologies of the people that are acting. I didn't have that from these enslaved people who were primarily illiterate. And most of the sources that I had that were written were written by their enemies, were written by slaveholders uh, and, and military officials and govern, government officials. So what I wanted to do was use geography in some ways as a source to plot their movements, their itineraries, as I said, in order to see if I could discern something from their movement about their intention, right? So if I could see where they moved through the landscape, that would give me a sense of why they moved through the landscape in the way that they did. So I know this gets a little bit technical and into the weeds, but I wanted to kind of think about if people were moving through the commercial zone from plantation to plantation and maybe out to the sea as they did in one phase of the revolt, suggesting that they wanted to take over the entire parish or in another phase of the revolt where I saw people moving up to the mountains to try and create an independent community that they thought could be defensible uh, from the planters and their allies. It's just through their movements that I was able then to see, okay, these people want to form a maroon community. These people are, you know, aiming to take over the entire island. I couldn't say so much more than that, but the geography helped me discern some things that were going to be impossible to know just from reading the textual sources on their own. So one of the things that I did when I 
was writing the, the manuscript is I, I essentially employed a cartographer um, on retainer, uh, a fantastic cartographer named Molly Roy. And I said, you know, I would like for people to be able to look at the maps we make and understand the way the story plays out, even if they didn't read the book. And I want them to read the book, obviously. I think they'll learn more from reading the book. But the idea was, how could we make maps that tell the story? That if I just glance at the maps, I think I could walk away with a pretty good sense of how things played out. And so what she and I conceived are these kind of uh, maps that look like a graphic novel, um, mm -hmm. where they're story maps, where you can see the story playing out over the landscape uh, 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 over time. And I think that really kind of helped to bring the landscape alive um, as I deepen our understanding of how people move through it through the writing, we see it in the cartography as well. Well, and I'd also add that, you know, it's a kind of staple of military history to have these diagrams of, you know, who, who stood where. Um, yeah. But I think that in your work, we really move beyond that to see, you know, the, as you say, the kind of um, the power of particular kinds of knowledge uh, in shaping, um, you know, obviously, ultimately success and failure in, in, in military encounters, but also in giving uh, sort of voice and intentionality to characters who otherwise are, are, are silenced, you know, in the archives. So, so I think it, it's a great um, advance for a kind of military history. I'm actually glad you mentioned military history because kind of there, what I was trying to do is use military history as a genre, as a kind of, you know, a genre that's well known and, and quite beloved uh, in some quarters. Um, and, and use military history to describe some things that military history normally doesn't describe. So you don't see military history contending with slave revolt for the most part. Um, the major military histories of the Seven Years' War, for example, don't mention Tacky's revolt at all, despite the fact that it was one of the larger battles of the Seven Years' War. I mean, you had people who were fighting in some of the more, the better known campaigns of the Seven Years' War in Quebec and Senegal and Martinique and Guadeloupe, then going to Jamaica, to suppress this revolt, right? Some of the same, the very same people, and you can see them, even some of the common soldiers listed on ships manifest as fighting this, this war, but military history hadn't considered it because, you know, we already know that's a slave revolt and therefore something separate from military history. So one of my aims was to see if, you know, we could bend the genre um, by using it to describe slave revolt and, and make it do some things that it's unaccustomed to doing. Yeah, and I also think that uh, related to that, there's a um, tendency to uh, sort of dismiss as guerrilla actions, as, as you say, sort of revolt or rebellion, which are um, slightly pejorative words and, um, and, and sort of have less of the sense of uh, heft and scale and importance of battle, um, to, um, to use these terms uh, to kind of write off a kind of uh, strategy, uh, whereas we turn a General Wolf or a Lord Nelson into a tactical genius because they did such and such thing and we can track it on a map and we can show how Wolf swept around to the other side of Quebec City or something like that um, and charted and here's this great success by writing off these other things um, as mere rebellions, revolts, etc. The fact that there's actually great tactical skill and knowledge involved also means that we, you know, sort of deride the, the leaders of those revolts um, accordingly, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in some ways, we're just kind of catching up to where military theory has gotten to uh, nowadays, where people are much more concerned than they used to be with battles between, you know, great power states and improvised militias. Um, 
with wars that don't have clear battle lines between combatants and civilians, um, with wars that stretch out over space, which don't have clear, clear battle lines territorially. These are the kinds of things that counterinsurgency theorists are concerned with now. These are the kinds of wars that the British Empire had to fight against these insurgents even in the 18th century. It's just that military historians hadn't really described them as wars in the way that I think becomes obvious when one thinks about, say, the U.S. wars uh, of, of, of terror and counterterror as being the model rather than the exception. You know, I also think of uh, uh, what used to be a sort of staple line in 19th century British history, which was, you know, oh, century of peace, you know, that there wasn't a major European war, we'll kind of forget about the Crimea and shove that off to the, to the you know, eastern frontiers. But of course, if you look at the history of the British Empire in the 19th century, as much as in the 18th century, where it's really pronounced, there's a war every year, you know, the war is every year. It's just a, one of these kinds of conflicts that tends to be, you know, subsumed under terms like revolt, revolt or rebellion or something. And the truth of the matter is, I think, I think this would hold up. If you were to look at British uh, actions against the many, 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 you know, opponents and, and forces of resistance that they met and in, in, in modern imperial history, you'd find they actually weren't that good at it. The, the thing that typically came to the rescue was a huge technological advantage, yeah. which we see, of course, in the 19th century with advances in gunnery um, that didn't spread. But the minute that that advantage goes away and collapses in the 20th century, guess what? They still aren't doing very well. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, I think what your book is doing is providing for us here this um, prequel to a, a, a big rethinking that I think needs to happen about the way that, that imperial power was asserted and contested throughout the history of the British Empire all the way up then I'm thinking to the, you know, the, the so-called emergencies and insurgencies of the... Yes. Um, okay, so I, I feel that it's important for our listeners, though, to understand actually what happened in 1760 and 61. We are very happy to go, uh, you know, spiraling off, and I hope we will continue to do so in just a second. But, but talk us through um, Tacky's Revolt, which, as we've already now covered, is taking place in this economic landscape, in this geographical landscape, in this cultural landscape, um, and what actually happens in the year 1760 and 61 in, in Jamaica? Well, Tacky's Revolt begins uh, on April 7th, um, the night of April 7th into the morning of April 8th uh, in the Northern parish of St. Mary on the island of Jamaica um, in 1760, as I said, smack dab in the middle of the Seven Years' War. It's just following a whole series of major victories that Great Britain has, has scored against France in the Seven Years' War in 1759. Um, and so there's a kind of, emerging sense that, that, um, that Britain is going to win the war, quite certainly. And then this revolt kind of starts in April of 1760 in their most important colony. The rebels first move um, uh, in, in the middle of the night up to uh, a thinly defended, uh, defended fort called Fort Haldane on the north coast there. They take the fort, its ammunition, and then they begin to move through the commercial heart of the parish, going from plantation to plantation, burning the plantations, to send the signal to other slaves uh, in the parish that they are on the march uh, and collecting more recruits as they move through the landscape. There is a major battle a couple of days later between uh, these, these rebels and the militia that's, that's rather inconclusive. 
It's only when the British call in their maroon adjuncts um, that they are able to pursue them uh, victoriously through the bush and extinguish that part of the rebellion in about two weeks, three weeks. I should go back and say uh, the Maroons, who were crucial allies for the British, had been themselves, right, communities of escaped and runaway slaves who fought a series of protracted conflicts, wars with the British through the 1730s. And in fact, the British didn't even know they were going to be able to keep the island in the 1730s. And so they signed treaties with the Maroons in 1739. Um, and these treaties, while allowing the Maroons to maintain some of their autonomy in their, in their mountainous communities, also required them to police future slave revolts, which in this case they did. So they were allied with the British by treaty uh, and then became adjuncts in this war to suppress Tacky's rebellion. Right? So the rebellion in the parish of St. Mary was suppressed within a little over two weeks, but then there were conspiracies and other small revolts all over the island in a subsequent period. And major outbreak of revolt about a month and a half later in um, the leeward parish of Westmoreland on the western side of the island. That revolt lasted much longer, uh, became a very protracted guerrilla insurgency, that, um, that lasted on through two or three parishes on the western side of the island and lasted on through the rest of 1760. Again, some of the Maroons helped to police that revolt, but some Maroons did not fulfill their treaty obligations and rather laid off the rebels. And I suspect that there was some conflict between the Maroons, uh, which encouraged some to, to fight the rebels and some to, to, to let them pass unhindered. So one sees a kind of complex political landscape playing out over the course of the year in which there are black people on many sides of the conflict um, pursuing their own interests. So what are the um, after effects of this rebellion for the Coromantes after the, after the series of, conflict, of, of struggles is suppressed? What happens? Well, ultimately, um, because of the kind of, you know, many-sided conflict that I described, uh, the, the rebellion leaves black people divided. There are new rebellions. Um, there's another rebellion led by Coromantes in 1765, another in 1766. There are conspiracies and uprisings uh, all the way through the period, and even a major one in 1776 that's organized not just by Coromantes, but by people from the Bight of Biafra, and also Creoles, people who had been born in the island. Um, and that conspiracy is also betrayed uh, and doesn't really get anywhere in 1776. But what one sees is that there's a kind of, there are political calculations being made among black people of whether or not to ally with the British um, who still have overwhelming force in Jamaica or whether or not to take their chances um, and stage these insurgencies. There are other consequences um, for both the British empire but also for black politics in the wider region because many of these people are exiled. Many of the captives um, are exiled from the island. Some 500, 600 captives um, exiled from the island. Some of them go to what was then called British Honduras, what's now Belize. And there is another slave revolt in British Honduras in 1765. Some of them go to Virginia and South Carolina. And we don't know exactly how they brought the news to other enslaved people in Virginia and South Carolina but we can be sure that they did tell the tale. And so one has to think about how it is that Jamaica might've played out among enslaved communities in North America. 
We also know that slaves remembered this rebellion and told the story to each other at least through into the 19th century. There's one fantastic episode where um, a planter uh, has some brand new people that he's just imported through the slave trade come to his plantation and they rise up and they attempt to stab a slave driver. He corrals these people, he interrogates them, and he finds out that they all know from communication with other slaves who've been on the island about these revolts that happened in the 1760s from 40 years ago. And as the planter says, from a time before any of the people here had been born. So we get a sense of a kind of oppositional political history being taught and learned on Jamaican plantations about Tacky's revolt for at least the next half century, which again kind of informs the political history of the enslaved communities, which has to be seen as distinct from the political history of planters. We also know that many of these exiles went to the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which was then the most profitable European colony in the world. And in 1791, as many people know, uh, started a slave revolt that became the Haitian Revolution, which resulted in the creation of the second independent post-colonial nation state in the Americas, Haiti in 1804, but the first to conclusively abolish slavery after a 13 year war that was kind of really embroiled in the French Revolution. I think we can surmise that the tale of Tacky's revolt also informed some of the people who led the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s. And just as a uh, follow-up to the ongoing uh, importance of Tacky's revolt in political memory in Jamaica, the image on the jacket of your book um, is from a graphic uh, novel from the 60s. Is that right? Yeah. So in 1962, when Jamaica achieved its independence from, from the United Kingdom, um, the, the state commissioned a kind of graphic novel of Jamaica's history from Christopher Columbus all the way through 1962. And the image I use on the jacket is the image that the, the graphic artist um, drew of Tacky's Revolt. So kind of it, it, it still played a role in communal memory on through independence. So what we see then in the black community in Jamaica and beyond is at once a tale of fragmentation uh, and at the same time, a tale of ongoing mobilization. Yes. Um, what about for the white community in Jamaica, the British? What are the ramifications for the empire? So a couple of things are important there. Um, one, uh, because it was such a huge revolt, um, it, it, it stimulated enormous amounts of fear, right? Uh, and the reaction to it was incredibly brutal. When people heard about the reaction to the revolt, I mean, some of them, some of them were in two minds. There were people who read about the suppression of the con who were more upset by what they, what they thought of as the bloodlust of their British co-nationals in suppressing the revolt than they were by the enslaved themselves. So there was, in fact, and maybe surprisingly, uh, an outpouring of sympathy for the rebels on the part of many Britons, especially uh, in, in, in Great Britain itself. Um, and some in territories in North America where they weren't quite as dependent on, on, on slavery uh, in those territories as in Massachusetts. So one finds people writing pamphlets um, in some ways vindicating the slave rebels. On the other hand, as you say, the reputation of the Coromantes as rebels also stimulates fear beyond the island and is associated with, with anti-Black racism and its emergence. So you find people like Edward Long, the planter historian who I mentioned, who wrote his, his history of Jamaica in 1774, really kind of you know, writes a virulent screed 
not only against Coromantes and against Africans, but against black people in general. And so in that sense, the revolt helps to stimulate a kind of anti-black militarism, an anti-black racism that becomes, I think, a virulent strain of, of white nationalism uh, that, that comes from the 18th century, frankly, all the way down to the present day, that sees black people not only as people who could be let, you know, ranked on some lesser scale of humanity, but as enemies, right, as dangers and potential threats. That, I think, is, help, is stimulated in part by the reaction to Taki's revolt as well. But that reaction also feeds into another one that I think is important, which is some of the early efforts to contain, regulate, uh, and reform the slave trade, I think can be attributed to the reaction to Taki's revolt as well. So you find uh, people in North America passing new taxes, duties, uh, on imports directly from Africa because they're afraid of what they see as this external threat uh, coming from, from African soldiers who might potentially rebel. Um, so in, in fact, some of these earliest efforts to, 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 to police the slave trade are stimulated by this fear, that kind of, a kind of anti-African xenophobia, which finally results, I think, in the campaigns to abolish the slave trade that reached fruition in 1807. So I think you see a kind of, uh, as you do with most major historical events, a kind of mixed consequence. This is what I love about this book and your way of thinking in general is that it's so uh, aware of the, you know, the big fault lines that we still struggle with in our society today, but is also um, incredibly sensitive to the to the nuances and the and the weirdness and the incredible complications that get in the way of, you know, among other things, organizing um, in the face of uh, injustice, um, but uh, but also that make it it just, just make it really hard to, to be able to um, sort of reduce conflicts to, to simple stories that we can then maybe, you know, yeah, I think that's, that's important because, you know, look, you know, as historians, we know the past never repeats itself, right? But we also know that some of the processes which underlie historical events are continuous and ongoing. And so it's easy to see that some of the, some of the problems, some of the fault lines, as you say, initiated by conquest and colonialism uh, and slavery uh, and racism are certainly not over, right? So we can see ourselves as in some ways can our predicament in the present as being part of the same process that was initiated in these earlier periods, even if you know, events have changed, periods have changed, and our, our condition is fundamentally different. The processes are ongoing, and I think it's important to recognize that. Yeah, you know, we only have a few more minutes left, and I'm so glad you brought it to this because as I was reading your book, of course, it ca you know it came out in the midst of what we appear to be calling in the U.S. a racial reckoning, which I find a kind of curious phrase. I wonder what you think about the phrase. But I also am aware of you know just a few weeks ago, of course, we had the Capitol uh, insurrection uh, uh, happening in Washington, and the role of veterans in these events is incredibly significant, right? Because we have, uh, in the case of, for example, white nationalism as it's emerging in the US, we have a lot of veterans of our forever wars, our wars on terror overseas coming back, you know, and, and engaging in various forms of militancy at home. We see, of course, in the history of policing in the US, all kinds of overlaps with, uh, with the military, not just in the personnel, but in the equipment. Um, and, I'm, and I'm wondering if maybe in just our last couple of minutes, you could say something about 
you know, the, the, the similarities or the differences or the lessons that you draw from having studied insurgency and counterinsurgency in the 18th century for the particular dynamics of uh, racial conflict and ongoing war in yeah. the United States today. Yeah, so one of the things, one of the themes that I'm really trying to get across with this book is to show how warfare migrates. Uh, how in a, a region and a period, an era of endemic warfare, those wars are not contained and maybe not containable, right? To show how Taki's revolt itself was both a part of these imperial wars between Britain and its European antagonists, but also an extension of these African wars between different polities in Africa, right? To show how, as I said, it was an eddy in larger currents of imperial warfare. And that by tracing out, right, those people as they move around from conflict to conflict, you are not moving between different histories. You're talking about a kind of single integrated um, uh, uh, area of uh, era of process of warfare that needs to be considered together. So kind of to bring that to the present, in some ways it speaks to, you know, my own upbringing. I grew up in San Diego, California, um, which is, as many people will know, but some won't, one of the largest military garrisons in the history of the world. Um, it's got a gigantic naval base and a big marine training base. When I grew up, the Top Gun Naval Flight School was there. Um, it's really one of the most potent garrisons uh, in the United States. And so because the military kind of has such big industries there, I had a lot of friends, um, you know, joining the Marines or joining the Navy straight out of high school. And so I had to be aware that the United States, you know, really all my life has been engaged in conflicts around the world somewhere. I can't name a five-year period where the U.S. military hasn't been abroad engaged in conflict with somebody somewhere, right? That is, as you said, an area of kind of an era of permanent and pervasive warfare, the forever wars that people talk about. I don't think it's a stretch, and I think it's, it's urgent that we think about how these conflicts are connected right? How it is that people, you know, learn something overseas that the militarism that they're conditioned into doesn't suddenly end when they return from Afghanistan or they return from Iraq or they return from wherever else they've been stationed, right? Militarism as an idea that, you know, most political problems can be solved by force is something that I think is, is, a, is a deep problem in our society right now. Um, brought to us by the fact the United States is permanently engaged in wars. That larger problem of how militarism shapes societies, how it shapes the proliferation of conflicts, large and small, from the quotidian daily conflicts of slave society that I talk about, all the way up to these, these epic trans-imperial conflicts, I think we have to be thinking about that much more intently. And certainly, um, it plays out when one comes to think about um, the legacies of slavery in race and racism and anti-Black militarism that I talked about a moment ago. Thank you, Vince. Uh, we're out of time, but I think that uh, listeners should have gotten a really good sense. The book is called Tacky's Revolt. It's about Tacky's Revolt and it's about a lot more. Um, so uh, over to Sharupa to close our session out. Thank you, Maya. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow to this show wherever you're listening to this.